It needs lots of prayer. So, uh, all right, we are continuing in our sermon series, Dust and Glory, the Imago Day, and what it means to be human. We're going to take a, a break from this sermon series the next two weeks. We'll have uh, some guest folks in the pulpit the next two weeks, and then we'll pick it back up in December, um, first week of December. But we are moving towards the end of this sermon series. Uh, we've been walking through what does it mean to be human. Uh, remember, the Imago Dei is just a fancy way of saying the image of God, uh, what it means to be made in God's image, and uh, what then does it mean for us to be human. Well, this morning, I want to ask you, what vocational calling brings God the greatest glory? Uh, By vocational calling, I mean uh, job, stage of life that you're in, uh, married, unmarried, uh, a child, an adult, uh, what job you have, any of those ways of understanding the place you find yourself in life. What vocational calling brings God the greatest glory? Does it bring God more glory when people have great influence, like the president or an athlete or a celebrity, and and they follow Jesus? Or does it bring God more glory when you do your ordinary, everyday thing that no one sees? Does it bring God more glory if you're a pastor or a missionary? Does it bring God more glory if you're a manager or a CEO or a leader or a boss or uh, low on the ladder, an employee or an entry-level level job? What about if you uh, can't work because of some uh, mental or physical health challenges? Can you bring God glory in that? Are there ways to bring God glory in those things? Does it bring God more glory if you're in some other position? These questions... And their answers expose some things for us about what we think the purpose of humans is. What is the purpose for which God created humans? So that's the question we have for us this morning is, why did God make humans? We've looked so far in this Imago Day series at uh, what it means to be created by God. Then what it means that we fell from glory in sin and how that affects what it means to be human. And then last week we looked at what it means to be embodied. That we are uh, both body and soul put together. We are embodied creatures. What does that mean and what does our uh, finite nature in being embodied mean for what it means to be human? And now we're going to look at what is the purpose for which God has made us. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the uh, doctrinal standards for us as a church, uh, the very first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's one purpose, one chief end, and yet it sort of has two things as a part of it, right? There's an and statement in there. It's one end, but there's an and statement there. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I want to suggest for us this morning that that's why God made humans. Glorifying and enjoying Him. And actually the way in which that's accomplished is actually through very ordinary things. Ordinary humans doing ordinary things in an ordinary community for God's glory. Actually, Anything that is extraordinary has to come through a community. 
This goes against sort of the notion in our culture that you are a completely self-made, gloriously unique individual who can accomplish anything. What we've learned so far is you are certainly gloriously unique, made in God's image uniquely. And yet you are completely dependent upon other people to accomplish anything. We are a community and that if we're going to accomplish the purpose that God has for our lives, we must do so in community. My clicker. All right. And it's going to be fairly ordinary. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 says this, Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. 1 Timothy 2, 2, Pray this way for all kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Very few of us take these in our culture to be our life verses. Man, I just want to live a quiet life. I just want to live an ordinary life. Just want to glorify God in ordinary ways. So if we're going to find out what it means for us, our individual purpose for God... Uh, to live before God, we need to know, overarching, why did God make humans? And to do that, we need to address maybe some reasons he didn't make humans. Was he lonely? Like, was God just, like, lonely and needed someone to talk to? (laughs) Was he in need of some sort of service? Was he needy for something? Like, God needed some help in accomplishing something. And so, therefore, he made humans to be these workers to get stuff done for him. Well, Paul, in uh, Acts, is uh, traveling around, and he's in Athens, and he addresses the folks in Athens with this uh, speech that I think addresses some of these pieces. So Acts 17, 22 Uh, starting in verse 22 through 29, says this. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs. For he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations through whom, throughout the world, the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since that is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. A couple of key things that Paul says here is that, no, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And if he created the heavens and the earth, he is not served by human hands. So we can avoid the idea that God created humans because he had some need, some deficiency that he needed us to fulfill. So you don't exist to serve God. 
When have you ever heard a pastor say that? <laughs> right? We're going to clarify some things as we walk through. But that's what Paul just said. You, didn't, you weren't created to serve God. That, like, he has no needs. That's not why he made you. He has no needs. So if he has no needs, he wasn't lonely because he has no needs. And because of what we know about God being triune, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity exist in perfect harmony and relationship and love. He has no emotional needs, no physical needs. Why does he create then? Why does he create? Well, I think we get a hint of it in John 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father, and he says this, I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. What we know here from this is that the Father and the Son have a relationship of love before creation. And what Jesus is saying here is, what I want for my disciples, what I want for those who follow me, is to experience the relationship that we have. That's what I want for them. I want them to experience the glory that you gave me and the love that you had for me before the world began. And so, what we need to know about why God made humans is because God is love. And the nature of love is to overflow. God is like a fountain. And the purpose of a fountain is to overflow. Fountain is not meant to be contained. It is meant to overflow. That's the point of it. God is the fountain of all good, love, and joy. And he overflows from that into creation. That the way in which God works and creates is to say, I love the Son. And I am going to overflow in my love for the Son in creation. So that more people will get to experience this glorious love. So that you can be invited into this glorious relationship of love. Alright, so now that we've got all that background, we're going to head back into the creation account that we've been kind of walking through pieces of to find out, okay, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? So Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we've looked at this a couple of times. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This last section, this last verse, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This has been called the creation mandate. This is what God gives for humans to do. 
And so we're going to combine some of the things that we were hearing beforehand from Acts and, and some of those places and this account to say our purpose as humans then is to glorify God by enjoying Him, engaging in cultivating work, and expanding His glory. Our purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him, by engaging in cultivating work, and expanding His glory. Now, as I say that, I need to say this. We have an ultimate purpose and ways that we do that. Right? Our ultimate purpose, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, is to, enjoy, uh, to glorify God and enjoy Him. Or, as John Piper explains it, glorify God by enjoying Him. Right, switching that phrase from the Westminster Divines to and to by. So this first point of enjoying Him is the penultimate purpose. This is the chief end. This is the most important thing. And the other things that I'm going to discuss are actually ways by which we enjoy Him. So it's our ultimate purpose is to Glorify God by enjoying Him and enjoy Him by engaging in cultivating work and expanding His glory. All right? So, so enjoying Him, this first point, if I could just have, uh, if, if I had, you know, a couple extra hours, I would make this sermon just this one first point, and then we'd do the other ones, or if we had more weeks to do it, we would do it that way. But we're, we're going to combine it all together. But you need to know that this first point, this most important thing, if you do nothing else, enjoying Him is what brings Him glory. So to enjoy Him, it's our first thing. We, we must enjoy Him. We worship Him by enjoying Him. That's what worship is, right? I think sometimes we think of worship as Christians as this sort of duty that we engage in. This thing that we're offering to someone else. But real worship is simply enjoying the goodness of the object of your worship. This is why worship and idolatry go hand in hand so much. It's because, like, why, why do we engage in idolatry? We'll talk about this here in a moment. But why, why do we engage in things like that? Because those things are enjoyable, right? And so, therefore, the, the flip side of that is to say, worship is to be an enjoying of God. A delighting in Him. Right, We are made in His image, and so we are to reflect His glory, reflect who He is. And part of our purpose is simply to be before God and enjoy Him. John Calvin says, If God contains the fullness of all good things in Himself, like an inexhaustible fountain, nothing beyond Him is to be sought by those who strike after the highest good and all the elements of happiness. Calvin says this, if you want to enjoy the best things, if you want to find ultimate happiness and goodness, go to the source of all good things. God himself. If there is something good that we've experienced in the world, it has to be from God. Because he is the fountain of all good things. And what our purpose is, is to actually turn from those good things, turn through those good things to the fountain of all good and enjoy God Himself. Enjoying God Himself. 
simply being before him and enjoying him. Now, some of you may think, well, how do I do that? Like, that doesn't, like, I get it, but I don't really get it. How do I do that? Well, how do you enjoy anything in your life? If you are going to enjoy something, how do you do that? If you're going to enjoy a person, you spend time with them. If you're going to enjoy uh, an activity, you go do that activity. You spend time doing that activity, right? You go after the thing that you enjoy. That's how you do it. That's how we do this. And actually, if you really enjoy something, you know what you do? You bring others along with you. Because you're like, you got to enjoy this thing with me. Like, you got to experience this thing. Which is why, like all of these things, this has to be a community project. Some of the reasons why we struggle to enjoy God is because we try and do it alone, us and Jesus. Like, we got this thing. We can enjoy him. Like, that's not how it's meant to be. We're meant to do this together as a community. If we're going to enjoy God, we have to do it together as a community. All that we said about creation and us being relationally oriented informs this. It can't be a you and Jesus thing. It's got to be an us and Jesus thing. We need other people to help us delight in God. And part of how you delight in God is going to be through other people. That's part of how we're going to delight in God. Now, the fall, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the fall affects everything. Our fall in sin affects everything and affects this, how we enjoy God. There's a couple of ways it affects us in particular. One is that we see worship as duty and not delight. Love cannot be mere duty. It must be delight to be loved. So if we are to enjoy God, if we are to worship God, we must delight in Him. We must delight in Him. Well, part of the reason we feel worship is a duty and not a delight is because we experience fear and shame which drives us from God. Right? I mean, this was the experience that we saw for Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as they sinned and they felt shame, they ran from God. Like God showed up. I mean, imagine this for a moment. In the garden, they have every good thing in the garden. They can do, like, like they can eat from any tree. They are to cultivate the ground, and the ground hasn't been cursed yet. So the ground's not fighting against them. Like, They have every good thing. And then in their sin, they run from God. In the fear that they have and the shame that they experience, they run from God. When God walks into the garden and says, hey, where are you? They run away. This is what we do. In our fear and in our shame, we run from God. And so we might come to God here on Sunday morning or in a Bible study or a small group or somewhere, some of the easiest places to run and hide from God is actually in church. Because no one, no one thinks I'm running from God because I'm sitting right here. Clearly I'm not running from God. But actually on the inside I'm running away and I don't want to be near him because I'm afraid of actually what he'll say. But as we saw in the midst of this, in the midst of the garden story, God says, where are you? Not because he's ready to judge and condemn. He's ready to give real, uh, real consequences to their re- very real sin. That's true. 
but also to promise redemption and to cover their shame. God shows up in the midst of that. Well, because we're afraid and feel shame and we want to run away from God and we see uh, worship as a duty and not a delight, our result then is to actually delight in anything but God. You see, when we are afraid of God and running away from Him and see worship only as a duty, what we end up doing, because we are made to worship, because our very purpose is to worship and to enjoy, what do we end up doing? Well, we end up worshiping and enjoying anything else in front of us. We end up running to idols. Why do you think the Bible has such an intense focus on idolatry? Because as image bearers, you are to worship the one whose image you bear, not anything else. You're an image bearer. You are to worship the one whom you image. But when we are afraid of God, when we are running from God in shame and fear and see God as only a judge or a ruler or a dictator or something we need to be afraid of, then we will run away from him. But it doesn't mean that our hearts fundamentally stop being worship things. It just means we start worshiping whatever's in front of us. How are we to do this? How are we to then move away from idolatry? Well, Christ redeems us from idolatry by being the greatest potential object of our worship and by offering himself to us. Not only does he free us by dying on the cross to pay for our sin of idolatry, he also offers himself as the greatest object to delight in. He offers himself to us so that we could delight in him. C.S. Lewis in his... uh, essay, Weight of Glory, I've quoted a couple of times. This is one of my favorite spots. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think Lewis is right. The reason we run after idols is because we stop short of ultimate satisfaction and seek to just be okay with whatever the world can offer. It's a little scary. To say, actually, no, I'm going to pursue the best good. I'll just be satisfied with this mediocre thing. I think often where we come into the greatest tension, and this was true for me, certainly growing up in the church and until I uh, came to know Jesus in the gospel in college, and one of the biggest transformations that happened to me was this idea that, Being a Christian was not about stuffing my desires, but directing my desires. It's not about stuffing down and not enjoying things. It's about enjoying Jesus instead. That God actually made you to worship. He made you to enjoy, to experience great desire, and to actually be satisfied, but to be satisfied in Him, not in the world. 
John 15, Jesus says this, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. In the midst of that section, he's talking about giving the Holy Spirit to us. And so the Holy Spirit as a gift from God to us is to fill us with the love of God for God. Did you get that? We get in the gospel, not only do we get forgiven, we actually get the Father and the Son's love for each other given to us in the Spirit. So if you're like, I don't know how to love God and enjoy him that way, Jesus gave it to you. It's called the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you so that you now have the capacity to love God with the very love of God. Freely given to you. Not to earn, not to work up, not to do anything to gain, just to enjoy. Just to enjoy. You are given God's joy and His love because He just wants to shower you with it. Right, The beginning of Ephesians talks about how God delights in us. That God is actually overjoyed. It's His good pleasure to save us because He loves us. It's His joy to love us. So we can love God with the very love of God. Now, how we do that is by working out some of these other parts of the creation mandate. Like, we don't just have to do that. Like, if you're thinking, okay, what does it mean to love God with the love of God and just be loved by God? Okay, so i got to be a monk and sit in the, uh, in the wilderness by myself with God. Well, if you read those guys, you're going to learn a lot of things about human nature, and you're going to learn that was great for some things and really terrible for other things. Actually, they lament very quickly that their sin followed them to the wilderness. And so running away to be alone with God isn't the only way to experience him. Now, there is definite need for retreat to be alone with God. That absolutely is true, right? We talked about that when we went through the liturgy sermon series of what it means to retreat and be silent before God, all of those things. That's all true, but we can't do that in isolation, And actually, the best way for you to enjoy God is to enjoy Him by doing the ordinary things He's made you to do. One of those is to enjoy God by engaging in cultivating work. Okay, so he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So this idea of reigning over and governing and ruling should really, we should really think about that in terms of cultivation, not domination. This is not like a blanket charge to humans to be like, do whatever you want with the world, it doesn't matter, just, it's yours, just take, whatever. No, it's cultivate, care for. That's exactly what he, he puts Adam in the garden to cultivate and care, right? This is to take care of, to cultivate. You all have unique contributions. Just as you were uniquely made to reflect the image of God, you uniquely contribute to this mandate. Now, this mandate is given to humanity, not to every individual or any one individual. No one can read this and be like, all right, those birds are mine, taking over, I get it all. No, this is a, this is, 
This is a cultural mandate to all of humanity, right? This is to all of humanity. Which means you individually were made by God to contribute in some way to that mandate. You were made and gifted by God uniquely. You image him, you reflect his glory in a way that no other person has ever done throughout all of human history. And you contribute uniquely to this in a way that no one else throughout all of human history has done so. So how are we to understand this? Like, okay, what is that individual purpose? What is, maybe another way to phrase it in a way that we typically talk about it is, what is God's will for my life? Like, what am I supposed to do? What is God's will for my life? Well, there is a section in which this is directly answered. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will for your life is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. This is not typically the answer people want. <laughs> like, what's God's will for my life? I've got a specific question. Tell me. Be holy. That's it. Actually, this is really helpful. This means we are not necessarily called to discover every step or path or career. Right? The question of, well, should I date this person? Should I take this job? Should I eat this meal? Should I do this thing? Am I in or outside of God's will? That's actually never told for you to discover. Nowhere does God say, figure that out. What he says is, be holy. What he says is, reflect. Follow my revealed will. Right? The scriptures say that the secret things belong to God, but everything that he has revealed belongs to us and to our children. So, what has he revealed? Love God. Love neighbor. Through the law and through the scriptures, be holy. This is God's will. Be holy. He's actually been super clear about what it means to love God and what it means to love neighbor. That's why we have the law. That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have all these things. Our problem in discovering that is not discovering how that applies to our life. It's in actually following it, right? Like if we read it and know it, we actually, it's pretty clear. We just don't like it and don't want to do it. Which is why we actually spin our wheels so often trying to discover things that God has never asked us to discover. Because we don't want to do the things he's told us to do. It's easier to endlessly spend my spin my wheels and thinking like, I don't know if this is God's will for my life. Now, there is very much, if, if, if a decision does not fall into, this is very clear in God's word, sinful, not sinful, uh, loving God and not loving neighbor, not loving God, not loving neighbor, right? Like, if it doesn't fall in that category, then the decision is actually yours to make. It's yours. Actually, God made you so that you can make those decisions. He actually gave you desires and passions and abilities and gifts so that you can determine what you want to do. Now, I know no one wants to hear that, right? Because you're like, wait a second. That makes it way harder. Just tell me what to do. But that's what God wants for you. He wants you to cultivate the earth. You cultivate it. It's not giving you step-by-step Ikea instructions, which might not be all that great. Maybe he did give step-by-step Ikea instructions, right? Which is kind of like, hmm, 
well, that doesn't look like a human and doesn't really look like a hammer, so I don't know what to do with this, right? Like, he's not giving you detailed instructions. What he's saying is, I have this for you. This is my law. This is what it means to love God, love neighbor. These are the rules. These are the things that you have. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You now get to play. You get to figure this out. You get to discover. You get to work. You get to do these things. And he's left it up to you. Now, certainly, there is wisdom. Like the scriptures teach us through Proverbs and other places that there is wisdom. You shouldn't make those decisions on your own. Right? The counsel of friends is really good. (laughs) The counsel of others in all these things. But also, God made you to make decisions about how to engage in cultivating work. What are you passionate about? What are you good at? I I definitely heard this somewhere, but I don't remember where. It's not my own, so I attribute it to whoever it was. Uh, (laughs) Just trying not to plagiarize here. Um, And if it was one of you in in this room, please tell me. (laughs) But how we discover this is, what is our passion? What are we proficient at? And what could be profitable? If we're going to think about cultivating work, like i got to actually provide for myself and others, right? I want to know what I'm passionate about, and I want to know what I'm good at. So I'm going to have to talk to other people to find out where's the, where, where do those three things come together. Now sometimes, here's the thing, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Right? We're going to talk about that in a second, the, the fall and how the fall affects that. But, but the reality is, of trying to figure those things out, we're going to need, again, this is a community project. We need each other. And if I'm going to need you for wisdom to speak into my life about what I'm good at, because I probably don't see it very well, you actually need to spend time with other people so that they're around you long enough to know those things about you. We have to engage in life together so that we know these things about each other, what we're passionate about, what we're good at, what we can do to provide for one another and ourselves, what we can do to cultivate the earth. We're not going to be able to understand the purpose that God has for us, for your life, apart from the people, time, space, location that you are in. We have to be connected to one another and intentional about that. Now, the fall definitely affects this, right? I mean, part of the curse is the ground's going to fight you, meaning work is actually really hard. It's really hard. And we are broken and fallen, and so we engage in both extremes when it comes to cultivating work, laziness and overwork. We either work too hard or work not at all. And this, this is something we talked about last week with being embodied, right? You are a finite creature. You can't do both of the, either of those things. Long term, it's not going to go well for you. One of the ways in which we do this, one, one of the ways in which the fall affects this as well, is that we avoid God's call on my life by waiting and being indecisive about it and just waiting for God to show up and tell us what it is, or by endlessly worrying that we're doing the wrong thing. Endlessly worrying that we're doing the wrong thing, therefore we actually don't engage in any cultivating work. If you're feeling something, it's the Holy Spirit, not me, okay? (laughs) Right? We actually just keep doing that, don't we? It's like, I I really think I'm going to do the wrong thing, so I'll just do nothing. Well, do you remember what 
the parable that Jesus tells that's kind of like that, where he gives out the money, right? The, 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 the master gives out the money and then leaves for a time and comes back. And one of them's like, I know that you're really intense, so I buried it. And he's like, yeah, that was the wrong thing to do, man. Let's take that and give it to the person that invested it well. The point of that is to say, he's actually given you freedom. If we believe the gospel, that you are fully righteous in Jesus right now, what mistake can you make that God's not going to be able to cover up? See, our indecision actually reveals we don't believe the gospel. We're too afraid to make a decision because we're afraid we're going to make the wrong one because we're afraid that God's going to hate us. But he's already said, I love you. I took care of that. Just go do it. And when we are paralyzed by that, do we make good decisions about loving God and loving neighbor? No. We're paralyzed by fear and we don't have the freedom to love. The freedom to love means you're going to make mistakes. We're going to do it wrong. We're going to blow it. And he says, yeah, I know. Why do you think I went to the cross? Like, I know you're going to blow it. That's okay. As long as we repent and come back to him. Right? So we can't be so indecisive or wait for something so grand that we miss what's right in front of us. We're always waiting for the next best thing when actually what's right in front of us is what God's called us to. What's right in front of us today. He's actually called us just for today to engage in cultivating work and to enjoy him as we do it. Also, we just have to struggle through the brokenness of the world. All of us are going to have jobs that don't satisfy at some point. The best job in the world will one day be a terrible job. At least one day, if not many days, right? Like, it's just going to happen because it's hard. It's hard to be laid off. You could be unable to work for any reason. It's just hard to do. How does Christ redeem? Well, he redeems by dealing with my sin and my shame so that I can be me, redeemed before God, and be okay. That I can be me, redeemed by God, And just be okay. And that now gives me freedom to engage in the cultivating work that he's made me to do. I have freedom to do it. And freedom to make it look different than any other one of you. Because God's made me unique to do it. And I'm able to take risks to love God and neighbor with my purpose because Jesus loves me. And he's got my back. So we are to engage in cultivating work, enjoying him. And the other part of that cultural mandate is to expand his glory. It starts by saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Now certainly, part of this cultural mandate is bearing children. Like that's very clearly implied in the midst of this. But again, I would say this is a mandate given to all of humanity, not every single person. And so fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. That's given to humanity, not every individual person. Meaning, like, not, like if you do not bear children and do not 
uh, have children and, and raise future generations, all those things. Like, you're not failing in some way as a human. This is a humanity project. And actually raising children, multiplying, filling the earth, actually requires the help of everyone in the community. So this is just my plea as a father with five children. Help me, please. Help me. I need help. Right? Like this is what, like it just takes the whole community to raise children. It's one of the things I love about when we do baptisms of children here. We take vows as a congregation to the family to raise those kids to follow Jesus. Just like you take vows in church membership and in marriage, like that's the kind of thing that we're doing there. We're saying, I take responsibility to care for these children. And children desperately need that. There is importance for the community raising the next generation. So you can contribute to that. Even if you never contribute by having children, you can contribute to that by raising children to follow Jesus. We desperately need that as this community and the church broader needs that. Also, also, we can expand his glory by our cultivating work. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Part of multiplying image bearers is by multiplying the reality of God's glory in the world, which you can do through your work, which you can do through your life, through your hobbies, through all of those things. You can expand God's glory. And ultimately as well, we expand God's glory as the church through evangelism. Actually, the Great Commission sounds very similar to the cultural mandate and even supersedes it and expands it. Matthew 28, Jesus' final words. He says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are able to contribute to this, certainly without having children. Actually, this is really important. Single folks, you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. Actually, Paul kind of prefers singleness. So, like, sometimes in the church we get this a little bit backwards because Paul's like, hey, this is a really good thing, and we're like, this is really bad. Don't do this. Right? Like, that's not okay. (laughs) Right? If we avoid... Uh, again, I've said this before, but if our theology avoids the person of Jesus, we're probably doing something wrong. Jesus, single his whole life, we're probably doing something wrong if we make you feel like a second-class citizen because that's what we would have done to Jesus probably. So we need to make sure we know that you are able to contribute not just in the raising of children but also in bringing more and more people into the kingdom of God through evangelism. How are people going to image God's glory most by coming to know him through Jesus and being redeemed to reflect his glory? So you see that actually fulfilling the Great Commission fulfills the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with God's glory. How are we going to do that with people who are rebelling against him, running away from him? Well, we share the gospel with them and we let them know that Jesus has actually made a way for you to be fully human. He's made a way for you to come and experience what it means to worship the God who made you. He's made a way for you to stop running from God and run to him. And to bring him all the glory. 
Again, this is a community project. None of this is done alone. We have to be a family together, multiplying God's glory through evangelism, through our work, and through raising children. Often the fall affects this by working, by us deciding instead to work to expand God's glory. We expand, or we work to expand our glory. That we actually want, rather than people to think God is great, we want people to think that we are great. And Jesus redeems us from this by giving us his grace so that we can experience his glory. And actually, he's already accomplished that global mission. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will what reign on the earth. You see, actually, the Great Commission and the cultural mandate are going to be fulfilled because Jesus already did the work for it. You were slain, you were slaughtered, and your blood already purchased people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It's already done. Now go do it. It's already accomplished. All the power is already there. It's already fully accomplished. We now can just walk in it. And they will reign on earth. We will fulfill the cultural mandate because of the blood of Jesus Sacrifice for us that we can know him, love him, and then reign with him as a kingdom of priests. Bringing him glory by enjoying him, by continuing to engage in cultivating worth, and by expanding his glory, which he has done fully in the cross. So, we can now know God's will for your life. Enjoy him. Be holy. Engage in the cultivating work that he's given you through your passions, your desires, your skills, your talents, your uniqueness, all of those things. And expand his glory by helping to raise children to follow Jesus and helping others to hear the gospel and come to know Jesus. And we do it all because Jesus has already purchased people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation who will worship him for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now because we know that we need you. Lord, so many of the things, there's a lot there for us to process. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you just make one thing stick? And would that one thing be that we are made to worship and enjoy you? Lord Jesus, this week as we experience something that causes us to want to run from you, would you remind us that you love us and we were made. Our purpose is to come before you, the fountain of all good, and just drink. Just enjoy. Just meet with. And would you help us to do that right now in worship through song, in worship through communion, and in worship through fellowship with one another. Jesus, would you be honored, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.